0: Today we are speaking to Andrea Stanton, who is associate professor of Islamic studies uh, at the University of Denver, focusing on twentieth and twenty-first Islamic uh, twentieth uh, and twenty focusing on twentieth and twenty-first uh, Isla- century Islam in the Middle East and around the world. Her research focuses on media and religious identity, and investigates the sometimes conflictual, sometimes cooperative relationships between new technologies and claims to religious authority, uh, which are the subject of her first book. This is Jerusalem Calling: State Radio and Mandate Palestine, which was published by the University of Texas Press in September 2013 and is the subject of our interview today. Welcome to New Books of Middle Eastern Studies, Andrea. Thank you so much. So we normally start with a biographical question, sort of what's your intellectual biography, how you came to the study of the Middle East? Great. Um, yeah, so um, I came to my study of the Middle
1: East Mostly um, as kind of an idiot's path, Uh, I wish that I had some really great story. Um, I don't have, as far as we know, any family history in the Middle and the East. I don't have any particularly strong religious commitments that point me to the Middle East. Um, I really started... Uh, As a senior in college, when I thought I was going to go on and study uh, the late antique period, kind of the same region but mapped quite differently. Um, And then I had a kind of crisis of conscience in which I imagined myself as a little old lady um, and thought, will I be satisfied having spent so much of my life asking students to look so far back in the past to find relevance for today? And stupidly, I thought, I mean, stupidly, not that part, but I thought, no. I'd like to look at, uh, you know, I'd like to... I like the region, but I'd, I'd like to bump it up a few centuries. The stupid part was that, um, I had studied at that point Latin, um, and I think a year or maybe two years of French. And I thought those were great languages and I thought they were really easy to pick up. And I thought therefore that I knew everything about language and that Arabic was going to be just like Latin and just like French and was going to be a breeze. And that was completely not true, at least in terms of uh, my ability to pick it up easily and quickly. Uh, but by the time I realized what, um, what a a false um, analogy I had been making. Um, I was already really into the process, and so I'm super glad that that I was. So as an undergraduate, I had been a history and a religion double major um, at Williams, and uh, the courses that I took that really did seem most interesting to me were either, um, again, kind of late antique Middle East, which was really framed as early European history, um, and then also on the religion side, kind of Islam and theory courses. And so um, it seemed somehow out of that, I came up with the idea that uh, Middle Eastern history was something as a field that I would be particularly well-suited for and also could really contribute to. Uh, Neither of which I think, again, was really true. Um, But uh, luckily, I got into this path and <laughs> kept moving on it uh, before I really realized how, how little I seemed likely to contribute to the field or a little well-suited. So, um, so that was kind of the origins. Uh, in terms of this particular project, uh, I never really saw radio coming. Um, I actually was reading for my oral exams. Uh, at Columbia, it was an oral exam process rather than a, a written comprehensive exam process. And I was such a bookworm and also, um, I guess, so budget conscious that I didn't have a television. Uh, And so um, I needed something to read, I felt, uh, at night before I went to bed that wasn't one more book for my exams. And so I've always loved uh, memoirs for whatever reason. And so I found... Uh, in the Columbia Stacks, a book by a man named Rex Keating, that was the memoir of his time as the assistant director of Radio Cairo, the Egyptian state broadcasting station. And I thought, great, this really isn't exactly what I'm working on. So this will be perfect. And it's a memoir. And I always like memoirs and great. So I read it. um, And it, it all of a sudden, Turned out that Rex Keating had been uh moved from Cairo to Palestine. Uh and he had also been the assistant director at the um the Jerusalem station. And so the, much of the memoir was actually about him working there for the final three years or maybe two and a half years of the station's existence. And and it's what I was later told, was a very British style of memoir, which meant that he had put in large quotations, extensive quotations from the diary that he kept at the time. And what all of that made very clear was, A, number one, there were these radio stations in the Middle East in the 1930s and 40s, and and number two, that they were actually really important, uh, at least or were perceived on the ground as being really important because a lot of what he was putting in from his diary, particularly from uh, well, late 1946 on, was <clears throat> accounts of different armed groups trying to take over the uh, the broadcasting station and then trying to uh, maintain it and trying to maintain operations and the various contestations and accusations of different sides stealing equipment to use for their own private broadcasting purposes. Anyway, it was totally eye-opening. It was by far the most interesting thing I was reading. And for me, it all of a sudden started putting these questions in. Um, I think, at least at the time, if I had been asked to give any narrative of the history of radio in the Middle East, all I would have had to point to was um, Salt-Al-Arab and, and a kind of 1950s Cairo-based regional broadcasting effort, you know, anti-colonial, uh, pro-Arab um, Arabs, nationalist, Arab socialists. Um, and what Keating's book all of a sudden made me start realizing was that, gosh, it seems kind of improbable that suddenly in the mid-1950s, the entire Arabic-speaking world population wakes up and realizes that there's this thing called radio and that they should all go out and buy a set and tune in and be totally persuaded by what was on air. And that that's not how social practices work. That's not how uh, listening behaviors work. They don't just... (laughs) spring up like Minerva full grown out of nowhere. Um, and so this was kind of a glimpse into a much earlier history that helped it put the later developments of 1950s plus radio into context, but also for me also seemed to put back a lot of the dignity, um, of the region, that this wasn't a late adopting region technologically, that this wasn't, um, a region for which radio was this incredible novelty that was, that no one had ever heard of, that there was this whole active process of, of broadcasting and listening, critiquing the broadcast that was happening. And, um, <clears throat> my questions weren't that bright about it at the beginning. My questions were pretty basic for like, Oh, there was a radio station. I'd like to look into this. Um, but but that was really where it started, and um, as it turned out, really no one had been interested, or no one had been interested, at least in in, in the Jerusalem station, um, the the PBS, the Palestine Broadcasting Service, uh, and as as far as I could tell, in terms of major contributions to the literature, so it was really a fun area to start to look into because um, it was so wide open, and it um, felt like there was so much potential for. Excavating and kind of bringing to light this little un, unnoticed, or perhaps less noticed, or maybe even forgotten um, corner of, of, of history.
0: No, I really appreciate what you just said about restoring the dignity of this, because it reminds me actually of something you said um, in your acknowledgements, or something towards the end where you talk about a Jordanian man at a, at, a, at a conference or a panel you were at, and how he was, his reaction to your research was sort of what, this isn't really that important. And um, what this book does is assert that this is really important, because this is sort of at the nexus of many different types of history um, about Mandate Palestine, and um, just sort of, I mean, there's there's elements of just um, British mandate history, but also Palestinian social history, but also the of the Jewish population living in Palestine. So this is sort of very intersectional and lets you comment on all these different things, one of which is actually technology. So I was wondering if you could sort of give us a broad overview of the history of technology studies in the Middle East, because as you sort of hinted, it isn't that developed. Um, it's sort of still emerging. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I guess I should start by saying that if I could rewrite those acknowledgements, I wouldn't have been such a little grumpy cat about that. (laughs) That that was from the 2006 um, WACMIS conference. And um, I think I also hadn't really formulated my arguments for why this station was so important. I think that particular exchange um, also started leading me to think about why and how people As far as I can tell, really, on both sides, Palestinians and Israelis had kind of forgotten about the PBS in terms of being a multi-language, multi-audience station. And it often, when I would talk about it to Palestinians... um, would they would confuse it with another station, the nearest broadcasting station, um, Adna, which, uh, was also actually British operated, um, but from Jaffa and operated from much more of a kind of Arab nationalist perspective. It was their much more kind of, um, anti Italian, anti German propaganda station, uh, and was seen as a much more kind of authentic local station. And so that seemed to be one that people would kind of map onto in their memories rather than the PBS, um, but i would if i if i could rewrite those acknowledgments i would be much more positive in general because there was a, there was really a lot positive to say about my experiences of of uh researching um researching for this project but the history of technology studies um so that's actually i would say that's not my strongest kind of home base um and in fact along the way this project started as my dissertation and i had Uh, three really great people who helped me along the way. Rashid Khalidi, um, who helped primarily just by being super supportive and saying, this is really great. I'm glad you're doing this work. Um, And um, Anupama Rao, who's a a scholar of South Asia, who helped me by saying things like, you're being too empirical, you need to think about this a little more carefully here. Um, And Richard Bullitt, who. um, I think is better known as a medieval historian but would um, would say to me when I came in with some cheery new uh, set of writing, say, but have you thought about how this actually worked? Have you thought about how big radios actually were? Have you thought about how easy or hard it actually was to tune or the quality of reception? And he would ask all these technological, technical questions um, that really foregrounded the way that um, radio, which is often talked about historically, even by scholars of radio in terms of just the content what was on the air and not so much about the kind of interface between the actual apparatus and where it sat and how people had to manage it Um, and the way that it was also managed administratively as a station or the way that it was managed administratively by a government Um, and so he really um Kept me on the straight and narrow in terms of not being too wrapped up into the ether of broadcasting. Uh, but the the history of technology studies, I actually, um, I mean, I, I benefited uh, in in some cases from work much older work. Um, uh, Yuri Kupfer-Schmidt's, um work was helpful, um, and also by others, Riley Schechter, who actually has worked more on commodities um, than on technology, but the way he talked about particularly in terms of mass markets and restricted mass markets was really helpful. Uh, but the, the history of technology, I think from my perspective, one of the challenges is that there are loci of technology production around the world. And then there are loci of technology um, purchasing and consumption. And so I think those places, which include the Arab Middle East, at least at, at this point in time, um, in in my perspective, don't get talked about in the same way in terms of interacting with agency, uh, with technology. And I think that that part, for me, I'm, I'm not sure that it comes through terribly successfully um, in what I've done so far, uh, but I really tried to emphasize at least that radio wasn't new in the 1930s for Palestinians or for you know, many people around the region. Um, It might have been a new purchase, but it wasn't a new concept. It wasn't – and this is some of the kind of older – I think stereotypical older, like older, older, early nineteen, early nineteen hundreds, uh, presentations of um, radio as this thing that people in the Middle East marveled at, and quite frankly, that's how Palestinians, at least in the press, portray Yemenis listening to radio. Um, but they seem to think that they all have a handle on on what radio is, um, and the the British Mandate officials do have a pretty um, paternalistic approach to rural broadcasting and, and rural audiences um but if you look particularly at the ads that butages was putting out um, in which they were clearly ad- advertising to a rural audience as consumers um then i think that there's there's a more of a story um and i think we do see it in in some of the in some social history work but there is definitely more of a story of technology being uh <clears throat> Or the The new technologies of any particular era, but particularly of the 1930s and 40s being clearly part of the advertisements in the press and I think clearly part of the kind of self imaginings of people who are at least thinking in terms of middle class lives or bourgeois lives or aspirationally upper middle class lives um, the the small technologies I think I think are what we're seeing here.
0: No, I really enjoyed about what you it, I mean you engage with techno. I don't want to say technology studies, but perhaps like more narrowly radio studies really well Mm -hmm. in terms of just sort of um, how different assumptions about how um, how radios were used elsewhere among different classes, um, Mm -hmm. particularly in the U.S., how those understandings are sort of taken and then skewed through the lens of how people view the Middle East. I think that was really well done, uh, particularly in the first chapter um, where you get into this idea of the radio and just the practical I mean, it's a really good setup. The, the The first chapter gets into this idea of the radio and how people sell it and how it's commoditized um, because that's a really good setup for the uh, Palestine Broadcasting Service itself, the PBS. Um, so one thing you did that I thought was really interesting was sort of, uh, you mentioned, modernity isn't sort of on stage, it's not sort of your principal focus, but it's very much part of this narrative that ties together um, colonialism and, um, you know, economic history, social history, intellectual history. How did you sort of see modernity as, as, as going tying these different themes together, like religion and nationalism? <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, so let me answer that. But let me just backtrack a little bit and talk about the um, the kind of comparative approach. So, um, again, really, the field of radio studies in the interwar Middle East is wide open. Um, and one thing I've been really lucky to have in the years since this book has come out is um, a kind of small but steady and much appreciated stream of graduate students and others who want to kind of continue and expand and hopefully make much better contributions to the field. Um, than I have, but really, I mean, Derek Penslar has worked on the Israeli side. We have Douglas Boyd um, from kind of previous generations. Uh, a couple people who've worked on Radio Bari, but there's there's a whole set of radio stations waiting to be explored uh, and their kind of collective um, and very site-specific connections, you know, nationally, regionally, and others. Um, But that for me meant, therefore, that if I wanted to talk about radio, I mean, my literature review is kind of a desperate, for the dissertation version of this, was a really desperate attempt to find out any person who had done any scholarly work on radio between the 1930s and 1950s. Um, And so I learned about Korean radio broadcasting and I learned about South African radio broadcasting. um, But along the way, it was actually really helpful, particularly in terms of rural broadcasting initiatives to see not only how much British mandate officials took from British colonial officials in India, which I think is probably not a surprise to those of us who work on the British mandate, um, But also how similar the arguments were um, with respect to the American Midwest. And I think it connected to a governmental concern um, and maybe like a social intellectual concern or fear of proletarianization that um, if rural people couldn't be made happy uh, by staying in rural areas, they would come to the city where they would be a displaced and potentially dangerous force. And so you see very, very similar arguments about kind of gently bringing rural people into the modern world by providing them with appropriate but not distressingly modern entertainment via the radio, you see that being made for people in Nebraska and Kansas just as you see it being made for people in North India and also in rural Palestine. So um, that that for me was actually quite... Um, Quite helpful because I think it helped take the Palestinian case out of its own box and started connecting it to connecting it to other um, historical boxes around the world. <clears throat> but the question of modernity, um, you're right. I, I wasn't really trying to write uh, a project that specifically said, "Look, Palestinians were being modern." <laughs> um, and uh, but I I was um, <clears throat> trying to start with that as kind of an assumption that here's here's one case study of the ways in which self-consciously being modern or engaging in certain elements of a modern life that might very well be urban <clears throat> but could also be rural, um, and how a radio became owning a radio set and listening to the radio became part of that. Um, and it seemed to me that that actually and I was somewhat biased because I'd already committed to working on radio, but especially if you look at the the press advertisements of the time, just as kind of a litmus test of what was going to be, um, what the available options were for visibly presenting oneself or one fam one's family as modern in a in a um, consumption sense. Um, there are ads for refrigerators. There's the occasional ad for air conditioning. Um, advertisements for automobiles, advertisements for these very British-style prams, um, strollers, baby carriages, um, and, you know, 50 million advertisements for shoe polish. <clears throat> uh, but um, radio sets didn't require electricity, which was really crucial. They could be operated on a battery. Um, and they also provided entertainment, um, not just functionality, and which made them perhaps more appealing than a refrigerator. And so... F- For me, radio sets were a really helpful way to engage with the question of kind of how does one cultivate a modern self or a modern family self um, in in various ways. And how does one also demonstrate that? Which gets back to the question of technology, which is that in the nineteen thirties in particular, radio sets were still pretty darn big. <clears throat> Even in the nineteen forties they were big and you know, people didn't switch out their sets every year. There was no reason to. Um, so whether it was a radio record player combination, a radio gramophone, or a radio set, um, they tended to be medium wave um, or what we would say AM. And so they required what's called an aerial or at least um, an outdoor cord. So like the kind of equivalent of a cable cord running outside your house or apartment up with an antenna and which made them even to people who weren't inside the house um or inside a cafe let's say made them also much more visible as as signals right so this is a building with a radio set Uh, this is a house with a radio set um in a way that might not have been the case uh with a refrigerator or a baby carriage or uh, an air conditioner, which seems highly impractical uh, given the electricity costs in, in Palestine at the time um, or shoe polish.
0: So let's get to the issue of sources really like just as sort of an intermission, because I think when you study radios, you assume, Oh, well you're going to have access to all the radio broadcasting, but you really bring together such a diverse set of sources um, to make uh, many of your points. Can you talk a little bit more about that in the research process itself?
1: Yeah, actually, so um, I like to think of this research project as illustrating what I think those of us who have been trained as historians in the post archives are the be all and end all era. Um, as that kind of illustrating it um, because first of all there actually aren't many radio broadcasts left over from this period and that is a technological question uh, until the invention of radio cassette recording or cassette recording which could be applied to radio the only way to record a radio broadcast was literally to burn a record and that was possible and stations did it for their live performances uh, because Depending on the copyright regime, it could be cheaper to play a record of a recording that had been done in your own studio than it was necessarily to buy a record and play the and pay the copyright usage fee for a record you had just purchased for this the studio. Um, but they didn't tend to simply turn the recording on and just record from the time the station went on air to the time the station went off air. Uh, And so there really aren't. Um, There's 10 or 15 hours of records that have been um, uh, transferred over to CDs and probably now digital files at the British Library, which includes some training sounds, the sounds of Bullets being fired is, I forget what, some group was trying to take over the PBS. Um, And then um, a couple of important speeches made by the, uh, the High Commissioner... Uh but that's really it. I I presume that somewhere, I mean someone has in some attic uh a few more hours of broadcasting that I just imagine has been laid aside because it was great uncle X's or you know, great great grandmother Y's, and um <clears throat> it just hasn't been of, of huge interest. Um and I imagine that the Israeli Broadcasting Authority has some. Um, but there really isn't it 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 wasn't and it wasn't possible and probably wouldn't have been that interesting for me to do a content analysis of every single hour on air. Um, but we just don't have that. And I think that's just true of, of stations in, in this era. Um, but what that did was it made me have to be much more creative. And so um, I did look at government archives um, in the UK, in Israel, the, the state um, archives, which are... I guess, currently changing in terms of their archival policies. Uh, And those were really helpful and also really eye-opening. They didn't tell conflicting stories, but I think it was a really good reminder that different archives hold different foci, that the concerns of the British government officials back in England and the documents that they had and the documents that they kept were not necessarily the same ones that were being kept in Jerusalem, where the, the mandate government was. Um, and then there were some <clears throat> odd photo collections here and there. The Library of Congress has some. Um, but the the newspapers actually turned out to be a, a really tremendous source, for which I was hugely grateful, uh, not least because they tended to publish the daily schedules. And the daily schedules were pretty specific. Um, you know, news in Arabic, news in Hebrew, news in English, um, <clears throat> talk title X by speaker Y in language, Arabic, English, or Hebrew, Children's Hour Story X in Hebrew, Children's Hour Story Y in Arabic, um, and then they would list the specific songs that were being played by the, the various studio orchestra groups, which is also really helpful. So um, the, the newspapers ended up being some of my best sense of sources for what was actually happening, what, what content was being broadcast on the station, as well as the closest, um, most consistent sense I had for any kind of audience response. The PBS was modeled on the BBC, um, obviously, and the BBC's policies at the time, and maybe even today were to be not driven by audience interest. Um, This was in some ways a very direct response to the American broadcasting model, which was very, very customer driven, consumer driven, listener driven, um, popularity focused uh, and commercial from a pretty early era. And so the BBC seems to have developed itself very consciously to be not American, not like the Americans. Um, And so, the BBC was interested in letters from its listeners uh, and would take them somehow qualitatively into account when contemplating its broadcasting choices, uh, but would not um, be driven by audience research or audience in- audience interest. And so that that translated over to the PBS. So the the newspapers were also helpful in getting a sense of um, <clears throat> kind of any consistent sense for how how the broadcasts were received. But the I think the overall perspective for me was that being pushed to look at multiple archives and being pushed to look beyond the archive was a was a really helpful reminder of what I think we all know as historians to be the case, which is the archive never tells the full story. It may not tell the true story. It may not tell the accurate story. And it certainly doesn't tell the objective story. And so, I'm not in any way trying to suggest that I have found the full story, the objective story, or the even the, the true story, but at least I felt that because I was pushed by the very clear silences or the kind of Swiss cheesiness of the various sources that I had because I was pushed to triangulate between so many, um, it, it really pushed me to get different senses of the radio station, um, and of kind of radio broadcasting and and listening in Palestine. The, the one part that I, I just completely never was able to get any traction on was, um, I had really hoped once I realized that the newspapers also had all of these advertisements for radio sets and that radio set advertising really was the dominant form of commodity kind of entry level, um, luxury or, bourgeois purchasing uh, in the 1930s, I I tried to contact several I looked at least at the American stations or sorry, the American radio sets and then looked to see who had been doing their advertising in the US at the time and so I tried to contact, oh, JW Thompson and some others either, the the archives tend to be at assorted libraries and you know, would say, oh, I'm looking for um, I didn't even think I said Palestine I just said, hey, I'm just looking to see what kind of stuff you have on the advertising materials that were sent to the Middle East um, for your radio sets that were sold in the Middle East before World War Two. Um, and then I'd explain because you know, I see the photos and or the the photo plates, and then they usually have Arabic text that's been added, but clearly they're they're getting some kind of standard materials from the home company. And I just couldn't get any traction on that. Nope. We never sold anything in the middle East. Nope. We never had any dealings. Like, yeah, I'm, I really have evidence that you do, but I, I don't see that. I, I, it seems to be either, you know, not, not part of the historical memory of these American advertising agencies or, um, not part of their, uh, archival, um, record keeping, but I'm, I'm sure it's there somewhere. I just, uh, kind of ran out of time and that would also be a, a good project to look at i think in the future again kind of restoring some sense that there's these uh these nodes of commerce and therefore also communication i think also of agency kind of did go much further than than we might assume
0: yeah i think we think so off so little often of how um we just take it for granted how commodities just crisscross the globe and how they're interpreted differently, um, but also how sort of having a common object does also tie people together. Um, Mm -hmm. But one thing you said, you were talking about audience um, as you were discussing sources and how the British really didn't, the BBC at least, didn't take its audience into consideration. And that's one thing you make very evident in the book is that this was established as a non-political station, that they featured content Mm for... um, I mean, the British very much saw it as a way as providing context for rural populations. That way, they don't revolt, which they revolted in '36 anyway. Um, right. But- but that <laughs> was right, literally three weeks after the station yeah. was founded. So the
1: British didn't get the chance to, the British mandate officials didn't get the chance to really road test the radio's uh, impact on on you know preventing the Arab revolt. But yes, I guess that would be
0: a really interesting counterfactual history. <laughs> that would be. So you have this, um, but it, it's interesting, as we're talking about the revolt in that period, um, that's also sort of the period when You know, the Supreme Muslim Council isn't as important anymore because its leader has fled in the wake Mm -hmm. of the revolt. And you have a whole chapter here on religion. And I love how you sort of talk about how the British, you know, are sort of on edge about what to do with religion. As it is, they've sort of already designated religion as sort of the commodity of this group, the Supreme Muslim Council. But also, you know, there's this issue of control and authority with religion and how um, they were supposed to deal with religion when broadcasting on the PBS. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yes. And
1: I would actually say that the way that the British mandate officials um, <clears throat> on the radio station, but also kind of in the in the um, mandate administration in general, uh, the way that they manage religion also <clears throat> connects to their kind of overall vision of radio broadcasting and the power of radio broadcasting in the pre-World War II era. There is it is hard to take this seriously now because we know that it doesn't work. Uh, But the notion of what's called injection theory seems to have been very, very dominant um, in British official thinking, whether it's in Palestine or whether it's, it's back in England. And so the assumption was that radio, because it was live, really, and because it was oral, um, had this uniquely powerful capacity to influence thought. Um, This seems to have been not really based on any evidence, um, but really to have been the case that um, the assumption was that... um, Sorry, let me start that again, because my mother is calling on my phone. Um, The assumption was that um, people would turn on their radio sets, tune into a station, listen to what was being said, and be completely taken up by that, would buy into whatever they were being told. Um, And so this really informs British fears, I mean, even in Parliament, of uh, counter-British, broadcasting by the Italians and then by the Germans in Arabic. They're just terrified by it. They don't seem to think that their own broadcasting is powerful enough to have the same impact, but they're absolutely terrified of other people's broadcasting. Um, And so that assumption that... Radio as a broadcasting medium is so much more powerful than the newspaper, is so much more powerful than word of mouth, is so much more powerful than even live speech, because it has this capacity to reach everyone in their homes and just kind of take up their their minds and fill it with whatever the person is listening to. It really impacts the overall approach to allowing or not allowing things to be said on the radio station. So newspapers are already under fairly substantive censorship rules uh, in the mandate era, but the radio station is under much more stringent ones. Um, so they require pre-broadcast censorship of all speeches, um, and they require uh, the right to vet, the right to cut the feed um, if someone says something on air that is deemed at the time to be into too inflammatory. Um, it's, it's a much more uh, rigorous censorship regime as far as I've been able to tell um, than the print press <clears throat> is subject to. And, it, and so <clears throat> religion falls under that. So the British also, very interestingly, do a lot of self-handicapping with radio broadcasting. They uh, reported to the Mandates Commission, the, the Permanent Mandates Commission run by the League of Nations, which was really decreasingly powerful by the late 1930s, uh, but they report to it every year with their accomplishments in, you know, bringing these mandate territories closer to independence, and so helping create a radio station is one of the one of the points they highlight because to be a sovereign uh, state is to have a radio station in in their minds, and so they really uh, are very uncomfortable with. Um, putting a a British view as they see it on, on the PBS. Um, but therefore they see that it must be kind of neutral, uh, and not advocate for any stance, um, in terms of what the future of Palestine should be. Um, and then the way that plays out in terms of radio in the same way that they decide that there should be more Arabic hours on air than there should be Hebrew hours on air because the Arabic speaking population is larger. They also allocate religious or hours for broadcasting religious stuff broadly defined um, by the population of each religion Um, and it gets very, it gets so, I think Muslims are generally treated as one category but the various Christian denominations are all kind of counted up and their populations are determined and there's some um, kerfuffle over whether the Copts in Egypt should be allowed to count because they evidently are listening or at least some patriarch thinks that they're listening to the PBS and so should they be allowed to count, they, in terms of how many hours um, some Christian denominations should get? Uh, but, but so the uh, the first time I ever presented on this particular work, this very astute colleague said, why on earth would they allow any kind of religious broadcasting? If the British think that, broad, that religion is such a hot button issue, why wouldn't they just, they just say no religious broadcast, nothing? Um, and... There's no evidence that that question was even ever considered. We'll just won't put any religious broadcasts on the air. Uh, I suspect that it has to do with the fact of Palestine as a a locus for Christian imagining, um, and particularly the Christmas services, which are broadcast with relay feeds uh, to the UK, to the United States, to elsewhere around the world, really starting in the 1920s. That's the earliest... um, kind of formal broadcasting, I think we see. Uh, and so there's kind of that precedent to follow that, well, if you're going to broadcast the bells from Bethlehem, uh, then you should broadcast other stuff. Uh, but they really do uh, put themselves into a bit of a quandary because, as you say, uh, the British mandate perspective of Palestine is that is it is primarily made up of religious communities or that religion is the most uh, crucial dividing line among the various inhabitants um, and that then on, along with that, that everyone should receive hours for religious broadcasting in proportion to the population that follows that religion or sect. Um, but they don't want to do sermons because they're terrified of what the person will say, regardless of what that person, you know, whatever the, whether it's a Christian, Jewish, or Muslim service. Um, and then they kind of relax those rules um, along the way, but they really, it's not clear that they ever really come to a, what they seem to consider an effective revolu- resolution. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting example of a problematic of, <clears throat> of... It is also British consistency, right? So you've defined this place as a place in which the inhabitants are defined by religion, and so then you're going to commit to putting religion on the radio, but you don't really want to do it that much because you think that ra- religion is so powerful and radio is so powerful, so how are you going to handle this? Uh, and it's, it's, it's a kind of an interesting case study. For me, it actually also leads ultimately, um, not so much on the PBS side, but the other station I mentioned, the Near East Broadcasting Station, ends up getting permission in the mid-1940s, 1945 or 1946, to broadcast pilgrims on Hajj, reading their letters live on air and having those broadcasts back from Saudi Arabia to Palestine, um, with the idea that then that will be a regional listening. And I'm very interested in that as kind of the start of mass broadcast media's intersection with the Hajj. And it's evidently very easily approved by the, um, by the Saudi government, but it, it starts a whole new relationship in terms of uh, modern mass media technology and the Hajj. That's not the PBS, but it is also happening in Palestine. And I think there's, there's some connection just in that the, these were also British mandate officials kind of overseeing that process as well as overseeing the religious broadcast on the PBS.
0: One of the other nexies of this book is um, nationalism, the idea of nationalism. And um, that was sort of pretty much the focus of Middle Eastern history and the historiography for many, many years. And I think Mm -hmm. this is a welcome contribution, especially because so many well-known Palestinian elite nationalists were involved with the PBS, which is unusual, right? It would, it, would, it, would, it would seem unusual to someone who was just coming to Mandate history without that knowledge of what um, the social strata looked like. So can you sort of explain that? And notably, of course, Ibrahim Tukan, who was a well-known poet, and yes. I was very glad to see and surprised yes. to see. Yes. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, It's uh, so I think one of the things that I liked about working on this station, which I had no idea would be the case when I started, I had never... No, never really thought down to the level of well, who is working there, and what what difference does that make? Um, but one of the things that I actually really ended up quite liking about working through this history was the sense that it gave, at least for me, of what the kind of complications and complexities there are of living in a mandate, you know, semi-colonial territory. Uh, You don't know when it's going to (laughs) end. You're also still trying to achieve your own personal, professional and national goals. And so I really uh, ended up seeing the PBS as one of the spaces in which uh, this kind of conflicting project of two emerging nationalisms was being hashed out. And it was uh, even more complicated by the fact that this was not An all Arab, all Palestinian, all Yeshuv, all Zionist organization. These were not two separate. Communities working separately uh, in separate spaces. Uh, this was one place. There was literally one building <laughs> and one transmitter. Uh, and then at, at the very end, the the buildings were split up, which was also interesting. Uh, but so it was a it was a very. I think at at one point I talked about it as kind of a polluted space, and I'm not sure that that's quite right. But it was a really a really multi-layered really complicated institution because it was British it was government it was officially under the control of the um, the British mandate government the director and the ad were appointees of the government had to be British citizens I'm not hundred percent sure that that was explicit but it was very clear uh, and um, and so there were People who worked for the station, either as full-time employees or as casual employees or, you know, gave talks, for example, um, who in another setting you could imagine might have boycotted it saying, well, this is a government station, this is... um, this, this is part of the, this is a profound illustration of what is keeping us from having national determination is the presence of this British mandate authority. And and yet you see person after person, and Tuan is a good example of that, uh, of, of people trying to work with the station. And another person I think of is Ajaj Noehid, who was not Palestinian by origin, um, but worked quite Cons- consciously to really instill um, a nationalist element, um, and also worked to empower the broadcasters on the station. And the example that I think of in his memoirs, which are a little bit self-heroic, but um, is of, of him talking about teaching the musicians to be able to write and read music, so that they had that that they were. Able to compete in a musical arena in which musical literacy was valued, um, not simply musical talent. Um, and so, so for me, it was um, it was interesting. There, you can see. Um, you can see in the employee lists also the ways in which the British mandate government is trying to make sure that there are Christians on staff, there are Muslims on staff. I mean, they really are also dividing it by um, by language, ethnicity, religion, that kind of... Um, that kind of matrix. But I think you can also see the ways in which the station is both a government station, both kind of a, a sign and symbol of uh, external mandate authority and also a space for trying to uh, put forward um, <clears throat> new nationalist visions. I think in terms of scholarship, I think that work has been done more clearly for the Hebrew side, um, and has been connected to arguments about the kind of development of modern Hebrew and the teaching of Hebrew, um, and has been connected particularly on, on the musical side with, um, uh, European um, refugees coming to Palestine as great musical talents um, and then being put, connected through Carl Salomon, who is the, the kind of music side director, um, kind of connected to an emerging Yeshuv notion of what would ultimately be kind of Israeli music. Um, and that's, that's not my work. And I, I'm not an expert on music. Um, I have no musical talent. Uh, so I speak about this stuff only as a scholar who is not very good at talking about music scholarship. Uh, but I think that um, for, for me, this station was really important as a locus for thinking about what happens when um, when Palestinian Arabs and Yeshuv community at the time called themselves Palestinians, um, but would ultimately be on the Israeli side, uh, were literally in the same space working together um, in a station that was also very much British-run. And so it is it is this really complicated institution. No one really owns it. Um, no one really can claim that it's exclusively theirs. And I think that's also why or that's my theory as to why um, post-1948 and maybe, you know, in the generations afterwards, the memory of the PBS seemed to have kind of disappeared. And I, said this earlier in our interview, uh, but that when I would ask people, Palestinians, about the station, they tended to misremember it as the Near East Broadcasting Station. That, that was seen, as, oh, the one in Jaffa. No, actually, this was in Jerusalem. Um, and on the Israeli side, there was a, um, I actually did put in the book, there was a, a whole stamp issued, and there was a documentary that came out 50 years later that talked about 50 years of kol israel and that um, really only talked about the the hebrew language side so there were kind of essentially two different ways of managing the memory of this kind of complicated multi-layered station one of which was to misremember it as a as a different station and the other one which was to just kind of only emphasize one language service as the as the entire station um, I, so I, I think for me that the The historical memory part wasn't the primary focus of my research, but it was an interesting corollary to seeing that, yes, so this was a complicated station at the time in terms of managing, you know, loyalty versus opposition, um, national uh, aspirations through the station or against the station, um, and then to try and manage all of that afterwards, after, after 1948 as well.
0: So one thing I, before we end the interview, unfortunately, I want to bring up is this other thread running through the book, which is the rural population. The fact that there is this mm-hmm. focus on the rural population, but also how you pay great attention to how the rural population, um, the Arabic-speaking rural population, might have listened to the radio, how they acquired radios. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of wanted to sort of get a sense of of, of how you saw them and how you sought to portray them.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, I should say here that I actually grew up in Iowa, which may not sound like it's relevant at all, but I think that um, as someone who grew up in a in a state that was largely rural, um, I do, again, to go back to the question of, of dignity and helping um, return dignity to those who dignity is not always given, um, that I, I have some strong feelings of empathy, or at least... Um, Em- empathetic uh, sense for uh, restoring the dignity of rural peoples, <laughs> including my fellow Iowans, and so um, there. It's it's very clear um, in the mandate records, and also in the the British kind of foreign and colonial office records that the the concern um, there was a, a political concern with the if not loyalty then the docility of rural Palestinians, who, for, who are generally referred to as peasants um, or um, falahin, um and treated in the documents, as I, as I read them, um, paternalistically, um, did seem to come in with a lot of um, assumptions brought in from North India about a kind of also rural population there. Um, in some cases, that is actually because it is literally the same officials who go from North India into Palestine, um, at, at least for kind of visits or short-term secondments. Um, and so the story that I thought I was going to write came out of also um, a book uh, that came out around this time that I was starting to work on that chapter, um, which was um, Amos Nadan's the. Palestinian peasant economy under the mandate and he actually does talk in my memory at least of about these radio broadcasts and so that was really kind of a, a government down look at these at the efforts to reach uh rural Palestinians through radio and it was with very targeted broadcasting hours. And so you see discussions in the in the government archives of, do peasants go to bed early? And if so, should the broadcast be earlier? Are peasants able to handle jazz? If not, then we should provide them with light, kind of ease them along the way into modern music, listening by providing them stuff that will be interesting to them but not overwhelming to them Um, and also of course a a lot of focus on things like weather broadcasts and commodity prices um, on the assumption also that as um, farmers these are more practical people and so they will want to hear more practical stuff and that will draw them in Um, this very much connects with what's going on in rural broadcasting in the United States also very very similar Um, and so All of that was happening. At the same time, there's also this great, again, concern about the power of radio broadcasting and specifically foreign radio broadcasting. And so the British government also has this scheme um, to this program, they they call it a scheme, um, to provide radio sets uh, to rural villages. And the idea is that they will go with, be put in the guest house of each village. Again, these are big radios. These are not things that you would carry around from house to house. They'll be installed there. The area will be set up there. The government will manage it. um, And it will bring people of the village, which is never really defined, although I'm imagining that these are men writing about men. So it's probably male British officials thinking of male Palestinians listening. Uh, And and they'll sit and they'll gather and it'll be a communal listening experience, which will make it in some ways safer. uh, And then and then they'll go about their lives. Um, but it will be, therefore, kind of a, a, a positive um, and, and productive experience. Uh, but they're still very concerned about what can happen with those radio sets. And so uh, there's concern about, should we charge for them? Should we you know charge for their maintenance? But also concern about... Well, if they can tune into the PBS, what other stations can they tune into? And so there's also a lot of discussion about pre-tuned radio sets. So a radio station that can only um, listen to certain frequencies. Or listen to certain stations with the idea that then they would they would have to listen to the PBS. They wouldn't be able to listen to Radio Bari. Um, and again, this kind of discussion happens with um, in in other contexts as well. The British government in England is also very concerned about what they consider reports that uh, Italian do-gooders are traveling around Palestine, giving out free radio sets that are only tuned to Italian radio stations. So there's a lot of kind of cross suspicion that's happening here. Um, all of this is a really interesting story. All of it um, seems to have happened to some degree or another. There are list village sets. There is village listening. There certainly are programs that are aimed at a rural audience. Um, but... Where the newspapers for me were really helpful, and particularly Palestine, uh, was that there's a whole series of advertisements in the mid-1930s by this company, Butagis, that was a general store with different branches, but really, really leveraged its radio set sales. They sold his master's voice radio sets, and that was just the focus point of of the bulk of their advertising. Um, And they had what seems to have been a whole rural advertising campaign, um, which was aimed at selling radio sets or kind of renting radio sets on like a long-term lease or a layaway plan, um, to rural listeners. And they also provided, they had a truck that would go around and perform maintenance on these radio sets. And they were primarily battery-operated sets. Um, electricity was not available everywhere and was also really much more expensive um, than what uh, casual users of electricity think of as reasonable electrical electrical rates today. Um, and And seeing those advertisements, at first I thought, oh my goodness, these are advertisements that are supposed to be, that are kind of snide and they're really aimed at a sophisticated urban audience to get them to kind of laugh at rural radio listeners. And then I realized that no, these are actually aimed at a rural market. Um, and that to me, I, I wish I had more detail to go and I wish I had more oral histories or more kind of on the ground experience because on the, the question of, of dignity, seeing those ads and seeing how Butaji's treated rural Palestinians as radio consumers, not as recipients of a paternalistic, um, program for modernization and political propaganda or political de-propaganda, um, was was really compelling, and it, it, it opened up a whole new way for me of thinking about rural Palestinian populations as, again, having greater agency than we might think, and also as having interest in radio sets as part of their daily lives in ways that went beyond what the Palestinian mandate government was was envisioning for them.
0: Well, I have to say it was such a joy to talk to you today about your book, and I do want to emphasize that I think you did restore the dignity of these peoples. I also grew up in a rural setting, so I definitely feel like these people, their dignity isn't well represented in um, the media, sometimes in academia, and I thought that just seeing how uh, how these individuals had a sense of themselves and how they were viewed by other people, such as you just mentioned, as having their own agency and taken very seriously was really well done. Um, but I wanted to ask you before I let you go, um, what's sort of, can you tease us? What are your upcoming projects? What are you working on right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really kind of you to say tease in radio in the same way. I tell my students
1: that I'm trying to bring sexy back to radio and they look at me like <laughs> I just landed from Mars. <laughs> radio, what are you talking about? Um, so, uh, yeah, I actually have the great joy of being on um, a seven-person uh, research team based out of the University of Bristol in England, um, and we launched last year, and we won, run through 2019, and it's um, it's seven PIs who are based in different um, countries, um, but who also work on different aspects of radio history, and so the project is um, kind of connecting the wireless world, looking at radio history in a more global perspective, and um, and so we've primarily been hosting radio workshops, uh, radio history workshops. Um, and I also have connected with some people doing something similar on the radio preservation side through the Library of Congress, which is a more U.S.-based initiative. Um, but for me, what that's meant research-wise has been the chance to look at uh, Another part of interwar broadcasting, which is BBC Arabic. Um, and there is one um, really great kind of um, definitive work on BBC Arabic, um, which has been the kind of um standard work. And so for a long time I thought, oh, that's great. Someone wrote on BBC Arabic, so I'll never need to. Um, but what this um, research team has um made it possible was for me to go and look at the the written archives of the BBC, and to spend some time with the Arabic files, and it's been really um, eye-opening and kind of an exciting way to see the <clears throat> to see how BBC Arabic and the PBS and some other stations seem to have not worked together but had some kind of cooperative elements which is a kind of um colonial era transnationalism if i could um put those words together and so right now i'm working on um trying to map out what that would look like for an article or series of articles kind of starting with the 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 bbc arabic and pbs as kind of um Connected stations, and probably also the the nearest broadcasting station as well. And I've also um, had the opportunity to go to Geneva this summer to look at the League of Nations and the UN archives, and um, at least in what I saw. The League of Nations did not do so much um, with Arabic or Arab world focused broadcasting, but the United Nations did starting very, very early on, which um, I hadn't known about and also hadn't expected. And so right now I'm... um, processing a lot of archival photos that I took and thinking about what the best research questions are to think about um, early post-World War II United Nations um, broadcasting in Arabic and what that meant to have a new international organization with a new kind of legitimacy in a post-colonial or post-colonizing world broadcasting in Arabic at a time when there's a very different kind of geopolitical arrangement. So that's a little bit different. than than what I have worked on in the past. Um, And I am mindful. um, One of my advisors in grad school along the way said, Andrea, you're going to have to branch out from radio at one point. You can't be the, the you can't be the radio lady for the rest of your life. So I am cognizant of that, and I do work on other things. I have a a small <laughs> research sideline on the use of emoticons um, in conservative uh, kind of conservative DeSelofy, uh online discussion forums, um, which will never be a bestseller, but I find interesting. Uh, but um, but I do think that um, these kind of unloved corners of media history are still really important ways to open up studies of of broader questions about identity um, and also do shed light on some of the political developments that we tend to pay more visible attention to.
0: Well, no, I think this is such exciting work. And here's hoping that people don't take radio for granted anymore (laughs) uh, and see that it's sort of part of these all these interconnected ways of of, of just different histories. Um, But thank you so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it.